Well, I think one of the things that makes people good at games is when there's a group of people who are intellectual and smart. They may not be edu educated, but they're smart and they're hardworking and they take up a game and they study and they play together and they talk about it. The original group that comes to mind would be Doyle Brunson, Amarillo Slim, Sailor Roberts, the Texas guys who might drive five hours to get to the game the next day and they'd have nothing to do but talk about poker for five hours. And they got very, very good at, at poker during that time. Then you have the Mayfair group of, let's say, Eric Seidel, Dan Harrington, Howard Letterer, me, Mickey, Billy Horan. We all learned a lot and we discussed a lot and everybody got better from the discussions. Risk of Ruin is a podcast about gambling and life and their intersection. I'm John Reeder. This is episode 26, The Mayfair Revisited. I'm sure that most listeners of this podcast have also seen the 1998 poker movie, Rounders. It has a 65% critic rating on Rotten Tomatoes, an 87% audience rating, and probably if you pulled gamblers, it would have like a 95% rating. One thing Rounders did really well was to make you believe that the underground poker world shown in the movie actually existed. That's because it did exist. The writers had spent time playing poker in New York City card rooms, and so they knew the details from firsthand experience. Also, some of the real card rooms made it into the movie. For example, some scenes take place in a club called the Chesterfield, which was based on an actual club, the Mayfair. Rounders is just one way that the Mayfair's legacy has grown over the years. Another way that the Mayfair has gained acclaim is through the success of the people that played there. For instance, here are some poker players that made their way through the club, as well as the number of World Series of Poker bracelets they've won. Eric Seidel, nine bracelets. Jay Heimowitz, six bracelets. Stu Unger, five bracelets. Mickey Appleman, four bracelets. Dan Harrington, two bracelets. Howard Lederer, two bracelets. Steve Zolotow, two bracelets. And Jason Lester, one bracelet. And the Mayfair didn't just intersect with these legends. In some cases, the club was an important part of their careers. This is Eric Seidel. He's one of the most accomplished poker players of all time. And in this clip, he's talking about a player at the Mayfair who served an important role for the game. He was known as Phil the Rabbi, although he wasn't actually a rabbi. Yeah, Phil the Rabbi was a guy who, I think he was a factor in New York. And he would come into the Mayfair and he would play. And he was a really a wild player. And he, he really made the game good. It wasn't, and what's good about somebody like Phil the Rabbi is it's not just that he's playing badly, so he's going to learn he's going to lose a certain amount of money that, uh, you know, that hopefully you can win some of, but, uh, but there, but it also creates a, a much better game now. Now it's an action game and there's just, uh, you know, it, it, it creates a lot more volatility. So that's very good for, you know, for the better players. And he was, a, he was a real character. I mean, you know, I, I, I think about him cause I think this is the guy who changed my life. I, I don't think I would be playing poker if, uh, if it weren't for Phil the Rabbi, because uh, he kind of made the game at the Mayfair. And if it weren't for him, the game wouldn't have been very good and I wouldn't have been able to play it. Because that was you know, that was in my really early days where 
I wasn't good enough to compete with the better players. The Mayfair also played a small part in the career of Stu Unger, the famous gambler whose life was a mix of legendary and cautionary stories. He was a card-playing savant, and he also battled substance issues until his early death. The list of legends is long, but one of them involves the way that a young Stewie would mow down the competition, playing gin rummy in New York. Here's Steve Zolotow. He might know as much about the history of the club as anyone, and he's also been a gambler for most of his life. And there was a guy who was a bridge player at the Mayfair, Vic Romano, who had learned how to play bridge in Sing Sing, I think, from a former president of the stock exchange who was caught with his hand in the till. I may not have all the details exactly right, but he was in Sing Sing. He was a mob guy. And when he got out, he never ratted anybody out. And they gave him a, a big promotion to running dance halls, which no, would be the the equivalent of topless bars now, dance halls and poker games in New York or gambling joints in New York, where they took a lot of money. But he'd still come to the Mayfair every afternoon and play bridge. And he also had his enforcer, a guy named Stanley Ackerman, who'd come in and play bridge. And they both loved bridge and played. And Vic also used to like to play rummy. And there were rummy hustlers who would hustle him at rummy. And at one point he came in with this, what looked like a little kid. So Vic says to the guy he's playing with, you know, I got this fucking headache. I don't know what I should do. I don't want to quit you, but I uh, I got this headache. I tell you what I do. I back my nephew, the kid here. Uh, you play him and uh, he's good for whatever whatever happens, I take care of him. And uh, that was, Stewie went in and started beating all the rummy hustlers at rummy. So that was my introduction to Stu Unger long before I ever knew he knew anything about poker. He also is a good example of someone who was a very good games player and a terrible gambler. And he was a very good tournament poker player, a very good gin rummy player, but he, he basically couldn't fall asleep if he had money in his pocket. He had to find some way to get rid of it. So in this episode, we're going to hear more about this club, the Mayfair, that occupies a unique place in poker history. But the first thing to understand is that it wasn't a poker club per se. It was more generally a games club, and it was frequented by the kind of people who are into lots of different games. This is Steve again. Oh, and also he goes by Z and Eric calls him Z. So from now on, I'll call him Z. I certainly played chess, bridge, and poker with my father as far back as I can remember, and he was very competitive. I think there's a my favorite story about that time is when I was in high school at one point. I was playing bridge with my father and two neighbors, and we played for very small stakes that I was winning, and the game was going very late. And my mother came storming into the room and started yelling at my father, saying, you know, what are you doing keeping that boy up all night playing cards? And my father said he can't quit now, he's winning. Z grew up in New York, and so he's been going to places where games are played for a long time. I wanted to be an actor in those days, and I would go into the city to study acting. And a lot of times I would miss the last train. We lived in Hastings on Hudson, and I would miss the last train home at night. And there was a really divey place that was affectionately known as the Flea House. But I think its official name was like the New York Chess and Checkers Club. But it had Chess, Checkers, Bridge, Scrabble, 
was on 42nd Street. So I would sometimes go there and, you know, just spend the time from two in the morning until five or six in the morning where I could get a train home. Z was young in the 60s, so if you just use your imagination, you might be able to guess the kinds of things he was up to back then. But also, during that time, he was building a skill set to become a gambler. Part of his education was technical, and then part of his education was just trial and error. I went to uh, L.A. I I had kind of dropped out of college, and I drifted to L.A. and had a, a a bad lifestyle, let's call it, trying to support all my other bad habits with gambling. And uh, when I came back to New York, I gave up all substances and I got a job working in publishing. And I uh, went to night school at NYU and I got a BS and an MBA, which I got a lot of stuff on statistics. I took a game theory course with one of the original founders of game theory. So I was suddenly realizing You know, I always wanted to win, but I didn't know the ways of winning. And then suddenly I, you know, began to develop more discipline or more character or whatever you want to call it. So both on a technical level and the psychological level, I was getting much, much better at all the games. And uh, I had another friend who introduced me to blackjack. So I started playing blackjack with him and going to blackjack places and uh, getting comped for things. And, you know, it's pretty easy once you realize, well, this is a plus equity game. This is a minus equity game. Let me try to stick to the games where I have an advantage. Z made his first trip to the Mayfair in the 60s, which was long before poker became the dominant game in the club. Uh, somebody, when I was at Columbia during my early days in college, I think one of the bridge players from Columbia took me to the Mayfair the first time. And at the, in those days, the Mayfair was just a, basically just a bridge club where they played a little bit of gin or rummy type games. And I was a bridge player and I could, you know, eke out a profit in the smallest stake bridge games, but I certainly wasn't a world-class bridge player by any means. And I also always played a little bit of poker, but, you know, like all games, it's possible to make money if you find people who play worse than you do without being any kind of a great player, and I certainly was not a great player. Even though we're talking about the Mayfair as a singular institution, it didn't have a single location. You know, if you're a building owner in New York, it's not like Underground Gambling Club is your idea of the perfect tenant. And so the club existed as a real estate afterthought. It's not really a location, it's a club, but probably in the time that I went there, it was at 10 different locations at different times. One of them was in the Gramercy Park Hotel. One, The last one, one was in a downstairs of an apartment building. It was in a building at one point that was owned by uh, the Helmsleys. And the building got, the club got raided by the police who thought there was some kind of huge gambling going on. And it was written up as Leona Helmsley's gambling casino has been raided. And at other times, it was in a building above the Copacabana. So it was always in, you know, when the rent got raised, they would move somewhere else all the time. Usually, some of the locations were nicer than others. Usually, they would try and fix it up with a a room where you could watch TV and talk. Sometimes there was a kitchen attached, and you could get, you know, order food from the kitchen. Sometimes they were just. you know, kind of 
they took over hotel space that nobody else wanted, and you had that for a while. And I wouldn't ever call it plush, but it was reasonably comfortable, I thought, in general. Eric Seidel is famous for his poker career, but his first trip to the Mayfair was to play backgammon. That was in the 70s, and he was just 17 at the time. I had met Roger Lowe, who was a top player. He was 19 years old, but he was such a prodigy at the game that uh, that McGrill had taken him to, to, to uh, play a U.S. versus Europe match. So I had met him at the game room, which was on the Upper West Side uh, in the Beacon Hotel. Well, I'd, I'd been told about the Mayfair, I guess, from a bunch of people, but Fran Goldfarb, uh, who was one of the top two female players in the world, had uh, brought me brought me there the first time. You know, it was it was a cool experience just to be there because I had heard about it, and I walked in and I, I looked at the wall and I saw there was an article about McGrill and Roger Lowe, and I, I think maybe there was a picture of Jason Lester also. I, I just remember thinking, wow, that they were they were only two years older than I was. It was mostly a bridge club at that time, uh, but there was certainly, you know, uh, there was enough of a backgammon scene that, because of McGrill, really, that uh, it was the dominant place in the world. Like, all the best players in the world came out of the Mayfair at that time. It was pretty serious. It was was how I was making a living. And uh, I was also trying to go to college, And for me, it was a bit of a distraction because I was doing quite well, uh, at least by my standards, playing backgammon. And so I I thought, I don't know how long backgammon is going to be this good or I'll be able to make a living at it. So I left college thinking that I would probably go back in a couple of years and that never ended up happening. (laughs) I I think actually it was kind of a, there were a bunch of us that were all dropouts. I think Jason and, and, and Roger were also dropouts, although, although they went to better schools than I did. If you're learning a game, there's a conflict between being profitable and playing against people good enough to teach you something. Eric was able to learn from some of the better players in the club, but he still had to be careful. He had to stay away from games where he was likely to lose. I didn't really have the luxury of being able to lose uh, because this was how I was supporting myself. So. I would say I, I was more cautious about what games I got into, particularly as I was developing. You know, when I first went to the Mayfair, I, you know, I was a pretty inexperienced guy. Uh, so I was fortunate that there were, you know, there, there were enough games where I could make a living, but I wasn't interested in challenging the best players. Uh, I mean, I didn't, I didn't really have the funds to do that. I, I, I would end up playing very often with them because there were there were chouettes, which were you know groups of people playing at once. So I would end up playing sometimes with McGrill or Roger Lowe or Jason, um, and uh, you know that was just that was just the way the game worked. Telling the history of the club also requires talking about how big backgammon was in the seventies. And if I just say backgammon was big, that's not enough to make you understand. I think the best way to get there is to play a few clips from an episode of 60 Minutes that aired in 1978. This is Dan Rather. Most everyone knows what backgammon is. It's a game played on those funny, elongated triangles on the back of a checkerboard. And until a few years ago, that's pretty much all most of us knew about it. Not so anymore. In the last few years, the popularity of the game has soared, and it has joined checkers, Monopoly, and Scrabble in the all-time bestseller list of board games. 
There are today an estimated 20 million Americans who play backgammon regularly. One of the people interviewed for the episode was Paul McGrill, who had just won the Backgammon World Championship and is also well known for writing the most influential book on backgammon. Here's McGrill from the same 60 Minutes episode. My impression as an outsider is that it's luck that makes the big difference. No, I'd say luck is very much overrated. I mean, of course, with the fascination of the game is it's a blend of luck and skill. But the luck part is so obvious and so omnipresent. You run the dice every time, and the skill part is a, is a lot more hidden. But the, the game is unbelievably deceptive. There is much, much, much more skill than there appear on the surface. And you're going to Saudi Arabia to try your skill and luck? To try my skill and luck and uh, just to teach. Tell me about that. Um, well, I've been invited by a Saudi Arabian prince to go there for a few weeks and uh, teach him uh, the, some of the finer points of the game. How did you get into that job? Um, well, so I, I just happened to run into this uh, sheik at a uh, discotheque studio 54 in New York, and I had no idea who he was, and he had no idea who I was. And I played the guy one game, and he said, I want you to come to Saudi Arabia with me, work it out with my, you know, uh, lackey or whatever. <laughs> so uh, that's where I'm going. I think of Batgammon as a board game relegated to a closet in your house, and it might be at the bottom of a stack of games like Connect Four and Risk and Battleship. I do not think of it as a cultural phenomenon played by 10% of the population. But there's Paul McGrill saying that he met a Saudi prince at Studio 54, and he was teaching the guy how to play backgammon. There was, there was a big boom in the backgammon world at that time. There was even a 60 Minutes on it. Uh, and, uh, and, yeah, McGrill was... He was kind of at the center of it. He was the guy who had written the Bible of the game, and he was an enthusiastic teacher, and you know, he lived in New York, and we all loved him. The dynamic where the popularity of a game, like Backgammon, rises and falls, that has happened to various games over the years. In the 30s, every newspaper had a bridge column. Bridge, there was a bridge match that was on the headlines of all the papers of Eli Culbertson versus somebody. Whatever the game is that's popular at the time, there were bridge murders where some woman murdered her husband. I mean, the history of these games is pretty phenomenal. Backgammon had always been a popular game. And then suddenly the the jet set, some of whom had been former bridge players, pounced on backgammon and said, this is the game we love. And you'd go to tournaments and there would be People like you, Hefner, there was a guy who was one of the big founders of Motown music and some of the music studios. I want to say Barry Gordy, but I'm not sure that's the right name. You, you know, you, you're trying to talk to an old man about things. You know, they, they say the three signs of growing old are loss of memory, and I forget the other two. I'm in that category. But yeah, there were a lot of, you know, celebrities would show up. You'd go into a bar and everyone would be playing backgammon. You'd go to a, a fancy hotel and they'd have backgammon in, uh, you know, backgammon tournaments. Charities ran huge backgammon tournaments. And uh, that was sort of the game of choice in those days. And those days, poker was very much frowned upon. Paul McGrill loomed large in the backgammon world. And he also loomed large at the Mayfair. Well, I certainly had a sense that there was an elite group there, you know, people like McGrill and Jason Lester and Roger Lowe were, you know, they were maybe the three best players in the world. 
And then there were other players that played there that were, you know, that were creative players and interesting players to watch and, and, you know, many other very good players. You know, one of the things that you do when you're playing backgammon is you play a chouette, which is, you know, one person against many. And it's a good way to learn because you're now, you know, partners with a bunch of people uh, in a bunch of the games. And, and so you're, you're exploring what the right plays are and, and uh, you know, being in an environment like that was just a was just a really great way to learn. And then you know, I was lucky also because McGrill was just uh, he he was not just you know possibly the best player in the world, but certainly one of the very best players in the world. But he was the best teacher in the world, and he and he loved he loved backgammon, and he loved to teach it, and so. You know, I would play at the Mayfair. I would play late sometimes. I mean, we became friendly and uh, I could just call him. And, you know, when I left at two in the morning or something and it'd say, you know, come on by if you want to go over some matches. And, you know, for me, you know, it was it was like, you know, Mick Jagger or something. It was it really really was the biggest star in, the, in my world. Uh, and so it was just it was it was just a very cool thing for me to go and, and, and get to go over different uh different positions and things with him um and uh you know he was always enthusiastic about teaching people and bringing bringing people into the game he just was a very generous human being i mean probably backgammon would be the game really where the mayfair so overwhelmed the rest of the world as i say that there was a at, at no point in time did I ever feel for sure that I could go anywhere and be the best poker player in the game. Whereas for a while with backgammon, if it wasn't someone who I knew had played a lot at the Mayfair, I would be very sure I was better than they were. But McGrill is also something of a paradox. He was a mathematician, and you could hear in that 60 Minutes clip that he understood how randomness creates opportunity in gambling. Unfortunately, understanding randomness is a necessary but not sufficient condition to be a good gambler. It gets you part of the way there. Another important requirement is being willing to walk away from negative EV spots. Paul and Billy Haran were playing craps, and Eric was watching them play. And Paul turned to Eric and said, who do you think is crazier? Billy, who thinks he can win at craps and loves to play, or me, who knows you can't win at craps and loves to play? So McGrill's story is bittersweet because the same person that revolutionized backgammon and helped put the Mayfair on the map is also a cautionary tale. Well, you have to understand there's a huge difference between games playing and there are people who are terrific at playing games and are hopeless at gambling. I mean, even with some of the poker players, you see that today where there are people who have no problem winning money at poker because they're a good games player and poker is a game. But they have a lot of problem avoiding the sports book or the blackjack tables or whatever you pick, and they manage to keep themselves pretty broke all the time. Uh, Paul was certainly in that category. I'll tell you a funny story about it. For years, he owed me money, and I helped, you know, I won't say I supported him, but I contributed to his lifestyle at least because he was an old friend. And at one point, he called me up and he said, I have to get. I'm not sure of the number anymore, but let's say $550 by today. And I said, boy, you know, you already owe me a lot of money. What do you need $550 for? And he said, well, if I don't get $550, they're going to cut my cocks off. 
And I said, what? How many, how many do you have? And he said, no, my Cox, my cable connection, and I won't be able to give backgammon lessons. Even if you can understand randomness and play the game well and avoid negative EV spots, you could still be missing important skills that would be required from a professional backgammon player. Eric says that these other required skills made the game less than ideal for him. One of the things about backgammon is that you have to kind of develop games and you have to, you know, it's one of the things that I didn't like is that you kind of had to develop relationships to get games and, you know, in some cases, schmooze people or that type of thing. And the nice thing about the transition to poker is that you can just go in and play poker. You Anyone can enter a poker tournament. You don't have to, uh, sh- you know, schmooze somebody or, you know, pretend to be their friend or some, something along those lines. But there were players that did that and, the, you know, they were certainly much more successful than I was at, at, at uh, maintaining relationships and, and getting games. It was a part of the game that I never really liked. Eventually, poker replaced backgammon as the game of choice at the Mayfair. The canonical story is that they started playing with the backgammon checkers as chips, although it's worth pointing out that everything we're talking about happened between 20 and 50 years ago, and so any story is probably subject to the reasonable question of whether it actually happened that way. Z and I have very different memories of how the poker started, uh, which which is really interesting to me, you know, how memory works. But uh, what I remember is that I was playing uh, the World Amateur Backgammon Championships had a had a uh, had a tournament in Las Vegas, and I went out for that, and I played poker for a couple of days, and by some miracle I actually won. Uh, yeah, I was playing you know the lowest stake game there, and uh, and so I went back to the Mayfair. And I wanted to play a little bit. And I started to play with, with Z and with uh, my friend Bob Banish. And we would play with backgammon chips. But I don't think either one of them remember it that way. So I don't know whether it's just like it's a stronger memory for me because it, you know, because it was my first time really playing or whether, you know, my memory is flawed and, 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 uh, and they remember it correctly. I think it was about the first year that we were playing it was only amateurs. They didn't allow any pros in. So people like Howard Letterer or Dan Harrington weren't allowed to play. And that was great because that gave people like me, who, you know, who were just starting and had no clue, a chance to play with other people that also had no clue and, uh, and you know, and, and, and start to develop a game. Because I, I, I was not a quick study. It took me a little while to, you know, start figuring things out. And uh, it was very helpful to have that year grace period where there weren't any pros allowed. And then after a year, they let Dan in. They let Howard Letterer in. Uh, I think Z was probably playing from the beginning because he was already a backgammon player that played there. And I think he maybe played bridge as well. And that was helpful, too, because now I had a little bit of a background and I wasn't I wasn't particularly good by their standards, but I was. You know, I was good enough to survive in some of the games that were either that, that were run at the Mayfair. So now I was getting the chance to play with people like Dan Harrington and 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 sponge off of them and and you know try and learn how they play uh, while also playing with the players that you know were, were similar to me in experience. 
To give you a sense of how strong the games at the Mayfair eventually became, here are the finishes of some Mayfair players at the 1987 World Series of Poker main event. Howard Lederer, 5th place. Dan Harrington, 6th place. Mickey Appleman, 8th place. Jay Heimowitz, 11th place. Mickey Appleman, Jay Heimowitz, names you might not recognize, but they both have five or six bracelets. They've won in the World Series. They were steady money winners, and they were playing at the Mayfair, along with the guy who ran the club, Mike Schickman, who was a steady cash game winner and never played in tournaments. And they, they, as other people drifted in, we were all games players and very analytical. So we started analyzing the games in between. I was a guy, Billy Horan, who was a very good games player and played poker. There was me, there was Eric Seidel, and we would play the games, we would talk about the games, we would read the books, we would discuss the hands. Howard Lederer was another one, very good games player. Uh, Dan Harrington came in, you know, he was a chess player and a backgammon player and a poker player very disciplined and everybody had their own ideas and we'd debate things and discuss it and everybody got you know one of those Alice in Wonderland things where you have to run as fast as you can to stay in the same place you had to get better and better just to be equal to the people you were playing with each time but one of the things about the Mayfair is in general the people were very generous about sharing information knowledge during the poker days, we very often would go out after the poker game broke up and discuss the hands and the players and who did what and that kind of thing. And uh, so that was very good for learning. And certainly in bridge, people are always yelling at their partners about who did what, who should have done what, what should have been done. And then you'd go to whoever you thought was the best player at the time and ask him, well, who was right? What was the right bid? What should I have done? And they would tell you. The life of a poker player is going to be very different from the life of someone working a nine to five. And that's true in a lot of ways. But one of the key differences will actually be that nine to five. A poker player's hours are inverted. For the bridge games, they usually opened around one in the afternoon. Then people would drift in after work, after the stock market closed, whatever. And the games would officially go up until midnight then they had when backgammon became popular those games would go all day and all night so you know they i won't say the club was exactly 24 7 but they might close to clean up a lot of times things are finished at the mayfair very late at like two three four in the morning it closed at four so i was lucky that i was young enough that it seemed fine to stay up you know, playing till four in the morning and then, and then and then go home and go to sleep and wake up at one. The, you know, that was kind of the existence. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, I was definitely a hard worker. I, you know, I, I liked to go in and play. It was, it was always, you know, fun for me to arrive at the Mayfair and see what was happening. We're talking about people and the culture that have little use for convention, right? They're sleeping when everyone else is awake and they're making money in a way that most of society would not endorse. So at a minimum, these guys have chosen to ignore norms, and in some cases, they've chosen to reject them. But according to Z, there were some costs involved. I mean, I can say truly as someone who's been a gambler pretty much my whole life that, you know, you, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, 
You'd go out somewhere, party, you'd meet a nice girl, you'd be talking, you'd be hitting it off. And she'd ask, what do you do? And you'd say, well, I'm a games player, I'm a gambler, I'm a bridge player, I'm a whatever. And it was like you could see the the curtain coming down over her eyes. She had, you know, she's a school teacher or a rising young executive. The last she wants, last thing she wants to do is get hitched up with somebody who's a gambler, have a relationship with somebody who's a gambler. Pretty much the only people I hung out with in those days were people who were doing things like waitressing, bartending, sex workers, you know, people who were up all night and kept the same hours I did, but the rest of the world had very little interest in us. Eric says that not only did he not mind the hours, actually, they provided an edge. And then, you know, one of the things that happened in poker uh, was that if you played in a game, it often got much better towards the end of the night because the people, some of the people who were winning would leave and the people who were losing were trying to get their losses back. So very often the game got much better, you know, the last couple of hours of the night, the last few hours of the night. So, I, you know, you were highly incentivized or I felt highly incentivized to stay till the end. Maybe the genius of a game like No Limit Hold'em is its simplicity. You can learn the rules and start playing in 20 minutes. That's a very helpful thing when it comes to drawing in new players. But they played mixed games at the Mayfair, which included high-low games, and then often they would play variations of these games. So whereas most people know the very simple game of Hold'em, these guys were playing games that were intentionally complex. In New York, almost every game before the Mayfair put in No Limit Hold'em or started No Limit Hold'em as its game, was that all the games were dealer's choice, high-low with a declare, which meant at the end of the hand, you put one chip in your hand for high, zero chips for low, and two chips for both, or coins or whatever you wanted to put. And you had to win the direction you declared, and it, it didn't matter what your hand was. If you were the only one to go high, you won the high half of the pot. If you were the only one to go low, you won the low half of the pot. If you went high and you had the best low hand, you didn't get any of it. You were going high and you had to beat the other high hands. There was a guy, Roger Stern, who ran a bridge player, who ran a very, very complicated home game where we played very complicated. For example, if you were playing seven cards, start high, low, you'd begin by being dealt four cards. You'd throw one away. When you got your fourth card up, your your next... uh, the fourth card, which was your second up card, then there'd be an immediate replace and you could replace any one of your four cards. So basically there was, and there would be reshuffles. So you had to remember the cards that were gone and couldn't come back. And then the ones that could come back because they might be reshuffled back. The hands took a tremendously long period of time and were very complicated. And he was the one who thought up the idea of running it twice. Prior to that, people in Las Vegas would insure a hand where, let's say, your hand rated to win 80% of the time, so you're a four-to-one favorite. If you wanted to bet on the weaker hand to ensure that you got some money back, you would have to lay more than four-to-one, like 4.2-to-one or four-and-a-half-to-one on the bad hand to insure your hand, whereas the running it twice is absolutely fair mathematically. Over the years, the popularity of poker grew, and so did the stakes at the Mayfair. But Z says that while the stakes increased, 
the game was always full of strong players. Initially, when we first started having poker, it was a couple of backgammon players, Tobias Stone, who was a well-known bridge player, and we started playing No Limit Hold'em. And I'm just guessing, but I think it was something like a a $5 blind, and hardly anyone had more than $1,000 in front of them, if that, maybe a few hundred in front of them. At the end, I think we were playing something like 10 $25 blinds, the minimum buy-in. You know, toward, when Holden was popular during the time when it was all the famous names were playing, it was like 10 25 and people would start with, the minimum you could start with was 2000 and there were a lot of people with five or 10000 in front of them. And then you could certainly make a good living. At around that time, they also were switching. The Mayfair started dealing mixed games, usually horse or hose. So it was a four or five game mix. And that would be something like one in 200, two in 400, something in that zone. So again, you know, you could certainly make a very comfortable living playing in those games if you were significantly better than the players. The big problem with the Mayfair game was the game was so tough that it was very hard to make much money just because the other players were very good. You know, you you might have a table where you had four people who might now be considered superstars, four people who would be considered very good, and two people who were the uh, live ones or whatever whatever term you want to use for them. If you look at the poker economy in a certain way, It resembles the patronage system that supports the arts. That's one way to look at rich people like Larry Flint or Jerry Buss or Andy Beal, who dump money to poker pros. They're not dumb, but they enjoy competing and they can afford to lose. For a poker pro, having one very rich person willing to lose to you can make a big difference. That kind of thing also went on at the Mayfair. You know, there were a handful of other people. As I say, there were some rich businessmen who loved to play poker and would come in and play for a while. And there were some people who had gambling problems who, when they were winning, were as good as anybody in the world. But when they were losing, they could fall apart completely. And so depending on the day, they might, you know, they might at the end of the year have a winning year, but they won a lot less than they could have if they hadn't fallen fallen into trouble a couple of times or gone on tilt a couple of times. There were some very rich people, some of whom were some medium rich people, some of whom were executives. There was a guy who was high up in the guest organization. There were people who were jet set people who loved to play backgammon in the backgammon days very rich people who played bridge and that was their entertainment you know the same way you might buy a yacht or a ferrari or whatever you you say it would be well i'm going to be a bridge player there are still people who hire bridge teams and spend hundreds of thousands a year hiring bridge teams and going to tournaments so they can win international and national tournaments pretty much throughout the history of gambling when you see these high stake games on television there usually is somebody who's made nowadays they've made their money in uh, some computer industry or in some startup and now they enjoy playing poker so they do it there were a lot of people that actually had jobs and they would they would come in and they would play uh, recreationally uh, there were lawyers and there was one guy uh, Bill Bartholomew, who was uh, a part owner of, he was a, he was a 
a partner of uh, Ted Turner's and one of the owners of the Atlanta Braves and, and CNN. And he would come in and play fairly high stakes. Uh, but there were just a lot of people that were, and so, you know, some of them were also very good players. Some of them were, uh, you know, very, you know, very good, but they were not as good as the best players in the world. So they might be able to make money, but, but, you know, they were still uh, underdogs against the very best players. Uh, but there were, you know, there were just professionals who would come in and, and enjoyed playing and some, some of them were quite good and some of them weren't. The Mayfair was in a gray area for years. There was no secret it was there, and it also wasn't exactly legal either. So it had some problems that are common for these types of venues. For instance, there were no dealers, and so it was possible that an enterprising player could cheat the game. And there were two guys who came in from Las Vegas and were playing, and it seemed like it was sort of suspicious. I mean, I'm always a little paranoid to begin with, so... They were both playing in the big, they had played in the small game for a while and won, and now they were playing in the big game, and it seemed a little suspicious, and I just quit. I said, well, you know, what do I need to be playing against these guys for? And the Mayfair had its own set of rules, you know, which were sort of New York standard poker rules. We all dealt for ourselves, so you wanted to be protected a little bit against crooked dealers, so you were allowed to cut whenever you want, but not abuse the privilege, so that if there was a big hand and you wanted to cut for good luck or whatever else you said, you were allowed to cut the cards. So a pot developed between Billy Horan, oh, Jason Lester, I think, was in it. He's another very good backgammon player, gin player, games player, he did well in the World Series. I think he final tabled the same year Dan Harrington did. And so he's involved in a hand where he has two aces. I think Jason had ace-king, and the flop is something like ace-king-deuce. And Jason's already all in. Billy and the potential cheat have approximately 18,000 each of a 20,000 stack already in. And before the guy can deal the next card, Billy says, I want to cut. And the guy says, no, 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 you're not allowed to cut. And they get a house ruling. And the ruling is, yes, you're allowed to cut. So they cut the cards. Now a blank comes on the fourth card. Billy bets his last 2,000 with top set, which is the nuts. And the other guy folds for the last 2,000, because probably my guess would be he had three deuces and was about to hit his fourth deuce, and that was now gone. They, and when they were playing, what they would do is the guy, one of the guys would go to the bathroom all the time and come back, and I guess would fix up a deck of cards and bring the deck of cards into the game, and then they had some way of palming out the old deck and putting in the new deck when it was the someone's turn to deal, and then the other guy would win a big hand. And they were pretty remorseless about it. It wasn't like they were going to try and do one hand for the night. They were going to try and do as many hands as they could get away with. Another common issue for private card games is security. Eric told me that he didn't have to carry a lot of cash to and from the club, so getting robbed on the way there wasn't so much of an issue, but the actual club got robbed a few times. Here's Z again. So in one room, they had a very large sweat where everybody was screaming and shouting. I was in another room where we were playing 
a game called Klabiash and some heads up backgammon. And it was a, a relatively quiet room. And a man with a gun came into the room and said, uh, okay, everybody lie down in your floor, on the floor, throw your jewelry, your wallet, your money into the center. And he started, everybody obeyed. Nobody wanted to, he said, you know, don't look at me, just concentrate on the wall. And uh, he kind of checked us out and was putting the money in a sack. And then we hear a shot from the other room where the chouette is going on. And the guy in our room says, oh, God, how come whenever I get a partner, he's an asshole and he shoots somebody? And I thought that was it. We were all going to be dead. But it turns out he had walked into the other room and told them this is a robbery and nobody paid any attention. So to get everybody's attention, he fired a shot or two into the ceiling or the floor to get people to start paying attention and giving them their money. Uh, that was one robbery. There was another one where uh, some old people who ran a different club got together and held up the Mayfair. This was in a different location. And they were all older people. And some of them we, we knew or some of the people knew. And of course, they all got caught. And when it was written up in the post or whatever, it was called the Over the Hill Gang Holds Up Poker Game at Mayfair Club. On a long enough timeline, the survival rate of every gray area gambling operation trends toward zero. The Mayfair operated for decades, but over that time, it became increasingly problematic. Then eventually it ran into a mayor who enjoyed headlines and enjoyed his law and order reputation. I mean, I, I think that most of us were concerned about that, that it could get shut down. Uh, but it also at that point, it had been operating for so long that, that things seemed okay. It seemed like, you know, the police didn't really care that much and uh, because it was a private thing. Uh, but, you know, of course, we, you know, I, I think we were always somewhat concerned that uh, that, that could happen. Well, Bridge in general somehow never seemed to have problems with gambling at Bridge was never a big issue. By the time Backgammon came in, it was becoming an issue. And the fact that Backgammon did a lot of charity tournaments and things probably kept it a little bit safer. And poker has always been a game that they think is poker and sports betting have always been considered evil gambling. And if you're making a profit running a game, you're violating the law. And depending on the how good your lawyer is and how obsessive the prosecutor is, people who are bookmakers and people who are running poker clubs have done anywhere from, you know, paying a fine and doing a month of public service up to doing fairly long sentences in jail. There was one of the players in the club was a woman, Wendy Neolis, who took my then girlfriend, now wife, to lunch with Giuliani when he was running his first campaign. And I asked him how he felt about legalizing gambling. And he said he didn't think gambling was a problem. And while he couldn't really come out in favor of legalizing it, he didn't think it was a big deal, which, of course, when he decided to become tough in law and order, whatever different moments of insanity have gone on in his life, that was one of them. And then he, uh, they also by then the Mayfair had expanded to where it really was a, plo a an illegal poker club, which was charging people to play and was, you know, clearly in violation of New York state law. I mean, that was no, there was no question about it. When it was a bridge club, 
it was much more in a gray area. By the time it became a poker club, it was clearly doing something illegal. Whether or not they cared enough to stop it was another question. And I'm sure at various times, there were police whose beat covered the club who would come in and get a gratuity and a cup of coffee and head on off to worry about other things. It's worth noting that because the Mayfair was in New York, it was located in close proximity to the world's greatest casino. On Wall Street, people solve puzzles with financial rewards. And inside the Mayfair, the players also solve puzzles for profit. And I'm not just employing a rhetorical trick here. The two worlds crisscrossed and overlapped. Some of the Wall Street money flowed into the Mayfair, and some of the players went to the markets. Roger Lowe had been a top backgammon player before he went to Wall Street. Well, Roger was the first I remember leaving leaving backgammon and going, you know, he was a, he was really he was an exceptional guy and one of the Wall Street people, you know, decided to take him under his wing. So he was the he was the person who left the earliest. And then there was David Leibowitz who had won the World Amateur Backgammon Championship and he was a very good player uh, that was based on the on the West Coast for a while. And he ended up going to Payne Weber. I think before he went, uh, there was Dick Furlow, who was just an all-around great, not just backgammon player, but games player. Just a very sharp guy. I think he was the one who ended up first at Payne Weber, and then he recruited David Leibowitz. And then both of them thought that I would I would be good on the desk as well. I, I, when I went to interview at Payne Weber, you know, I was totally inexperienced and, you know, I had no idea. I'd never been in a job interview before. And, and I was told afterwards that the, uh, I, I, I was so awkward that it was the worst interview that, that, that the head of the desk had ever seen. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's amazing that I got hired, but it, it worked out for me and it worked out for them. I was picked by a couple of the Mayfair players who, who were backgammon players uh, to trade at Payne Weber. So I was, I was trading Ginny May mortgages for, uh, for Payne Weber for about a year and a half. And uh, after that, I ended up going down to the floor of the Amex, uh, partly working with Roger Lowe, who was a, who was a top backgammon player, uh, and, uh, and then also working on my own at some point. Gamblers and traders also share a requirement that they learn to tame their emotions. Just imagine that you make a living with your mind by making decisions, by exercising judgment, and yet the logical part of your brain is under almost constant attack from your emotions. I could see that, you know, some people had a certain gambling instinct, were very good about uh, understanding risk-reward situations. And, uh, and then there were other people you know, even, you know, people within the gambling world who uh, didn't handle losing well and didn't play their best when they were losing. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, I guess the the term in gambling is steaming. They would, they would, they would start to lose and they would, they would, uh, they would become more irrational. So in theory, people who are accustomed to making money by reasoning through problems and who have gone to some effort to get control of their emotions when the stakes are high, should be good candidates for the markets. And in practice, that has turned out to be true as well. I think that the the best poker players, a lot of these young pl- poker players, should be scooped up by Wall Street. They're really, really brilliant guys. I mean, many of them, probably maybe most of them, 
don't want a job, but uh, but there are you know there are enough uh, there are some really good players that you know the ones that that are really bright and have good gambling skills that should carry over to Wall Street, and it has. I mean, there have certainly been a, a bunch of people who have left the games world and gone into Wall Street and been, been very successful. It's a two way street. There are people who are in other professions and go to games, and there are people who are in game playing and go to other professions. You mentioned Jimmy Kane before was somebody who was a gambler who became a Wall Street guy. Probably the most successful of the Wall Street guys, more so even than Jimmy Kane, is a guy, Jeff Yass, who was a small stake poker player and went into options trading and started a company, Susquehanna, which is now probably the largest individual company trading options in the world. And, uh, you know, he's, he's head of that and he's made what, what most people would consider many fortunes. Um, Bobby Baldwin was another one who was a poker player, games player who went into the casino business. Uh, and likewise, you had people who worked in the, worked in Wall Street and decided they didn't like working in Wall Street. They turned around and, took up poker or took up bridge or took up backgammon or something else. And they said, boy, this is a lot more fun than Wall Street. So you have both people going and coming. One of the great examples of someone who parlayed their game playing ability into a career on Wall Street is Jimmy Kane. He was hired at Bear Stearns essentially because he was a good bridge player. And a few decades later, he was the CEO. He wasn't a quant like some of the other gamblers that have made their way to Wall Street, but he always approached his career like a game. He took the same reasoning that would be helpful in a game and applied it to the politics of a Wall Street bank. It also didn't hurt that early in his career, he could call on his wealthy bridge connections and they became his clients. He was a good friend and a total maniac. And uh, he was one of the ones who he was when I first met Jimmy, he was kind of a, a struggling bridge hustler and Ace Greenberg who ran the Ram Bear Stearns at that point offered him a job and he was a genius in the financial area and skyrocketed to great wealth. And I think at one point he was a billionaire before one of the market crashes or before Bear Stearns went bad. And, uh, you know, he would hire very expensive bridge teams as opposed to being somebody who was scuffling around trying to get, you know, rent money playing bridge. Eric mentioned that he understands why some poker players don't go to Wall Street. It comes down to life choices. And also, Eric wasn't happy on Wall Street either. When Black Monday 1987 rolled around, it sort of did him a favor. The firm that I worked for went out of business. And so now I was out without a job. And I went back to the Mayfair, where there was a poker game going fairly regularly. And I would just hang out. And, you know, when the game was good, I would hop in. And I didn't have a great deal of confidence because I didn't have that much experience and there were a lot of good players in the game at the time uh, but I would play and, and little by little um, my game did develop and and uh, the mixture of the really excellent players like Dan Harrington and Jay Heimowitz and Mickey Appleman and and uh, B- Billy Horan was in the game uh, you know and and a few amateurs uh, w- was good it, it allowed me to uh, to earn while I learned, I guess, for a while. Not long after Black Monday, Eric had some poker results that would be encouraging for anyone. He finished second to Johnny Chan in the World Series of Poker main event. 
I mean, I knew that there were some New York players who were really good. And and the year before, I came in second at the World Series. I think it was Jay Heimlitz and Howard Letter both uh, made the final. No, it was, it was Dan Harrington and, and Howard Letter both made the final table. And uh, Jay had won a bunch of uh, bracelets out in Vegas. So, I, you know, I, I knew that those players could compete on, you know, with with other players uh, in, you know, in those circumstances. I didn't know that I could. Uh, and it kind of, you know, caught me a little bit by surprise when it did happen. You know, I, I went out in 88 and uh, and played the World Series for the first time. And and there were, you know, a bunch of the Mayfair players were, were nice enough to support me, even though I didn't really have any tournament experience at all. So um, that was, yeah, I, I do remember, I remember playing day two of the, of the main event and and thinking, wow, there are some things that I'm doing here that nobody else seems to be doing, and 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 they seem to be working well. <laughs> so, so I did, you know, I, I started to to get the sense that, well, you know, maybe there are certain things that that uh, that I that I do, or or that you know, people from New York do, maybe that uh, you know that work in these in, in these big events. Today, a ten thousand dollar buy in tournament isn't even close to the biggest tournament, but in 1988. $10,000 was a big swing for Eric, so he sold about 70% of his main event action, and some of the investors were other players from the Mayfair. It was huge, yeah. I mean, it was really nice that people were showing confidence in me. A couple of the players at the Mayfair had, had talked to me about playing the, because I'd done, I had been doing really well at the Mayfair, and so a couple of the players had said, you should come out to the World Series, and then they, they did end up backing me. I think I had 30% of myself overall. And uh, it was really, really fun to to play the tournament, to have that support, and also to get to make friends money. It was really, it was kind of a thrilling thing. You might remember that in the movie Rounders, the final hand of the 1988 main event plays a very big role. That's the hand where Johnny Chan beat Eric for first place. The actual footage from the hand is shown, and then the way the hand played out gets echoed again in the final climactic scene of the movie. The protagonist, Mike McDermott, still plays his straight the same way that Johnny Chan did in the 88 main event. So Eric is uniquely and oddly positioned in this piece of history that has been cemented in poker culture. The 88 main event was a hugely positive thing for him. And then 10 years later, it showed up in a movie and the message was not really, look how great Eric Seidel is. Well, you know, when I first saw the rounder script, I, I remember taking offense to it. And, you know, it kind of it bothered me for a little while. And then I and then I thought about it. And I thought, well, for, certainly these guys have artistic license to, to make it seem any way they want. Uh, and, you know, not only that, but they were right. I didn't play that well. I was, you know, I, I was a young kid. It was my first tournament. And I was playing against a guy who, you know, at that time may have been the best player in the world. So I got outplayed badly. Uh, and I, you know, I, I didn't, it didn't end up, it doesn't bother me now. And, uh, and I think I got over it very quickly. Just, you know, it didn't, I didn't really think of it. It it was that big a deal. Like, I don't feel like I carry some kind of insult or anything. (laughs) So the recreational players that made their way through the Mayfair could lose their money, then go work and make more money to lose. But the stakes are different for a pro. Their bankroll has to serve two purposes. First, that money is the raw material of their business. No money, 
no way to make more money, but also they have to live on it. And every dollar in life expenses is a dollar that's not in the bankroll. After the World Series, I, I think I only had 90000 to my name, and that was after winning uh, whatever it was, cashing 168000 So my bankroll was pretty small, and I, you know, I, I think that forced me to be cautious and to play smaller, and, and uh, I didn't have the flexibility to, to play in a lot of the games that you know, I would have liked to play in. But that's also how you develop. I was very, very concerned. I'm still very, very concerned. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that particularly at the beginning, well, after I did well in the World Series, uh, we had a baby on the way. So I was, I was very concerned about, you know, could I make a living as a gambler, uh, a good enough living to be able to support a, a child? And, uh, so yeah, I was, I, I would say I was always very, very concerned about that. I definitely feel like I was on, I I was on the more cautious side than other people in terms of bankroll. I didn't want to, I didn't want to risk ruin. And and particularly once I was married and had a family now, I, you know, I didn't feel like, I think if I were single, I probably would have played a lot more limit games back then because the, the swings wouldn't have mattered as much to me and I wouldn't have mind I wouldn't have minded losing and, and uh you know in order to learn games. But once you have an obligation to pay the rent and and put food on the table and you know uh things things do get a little bit different. You do feel you do feel uh or I felt like, you know, I I, I needed to be uh you know, I, I couldn't be as reckless as as uh as some of my peers. And I I also, you know, I, I think that Many of them had more talent than I did as well, so they, you know, it, it was it would be easier for them to swing for the fences, and if they missed, they they could they could build their bankroll. Uh, so I, you know, I, I don't think I was among the more talented of my peers. It's one thing for gamblers to get comfortable with the challenges that are unique to their profession, but then it's an entirely different thing for their families to get comfortable with those issues. But Eric said that his wife has actually been very supportive. You know, it wasn't very long after I met her that I realized or that I thought, well, I better straighten out and quit gambling and, and, and take a real job because uh, you know, this was somebody that I was in love with. And I didn't want it, I didn't want her to be scared off by uh, by the possibility of, of taking gambling swings. As it turns out, she was very good at handling gambling swings. We've had plenty in our life and and uh, and has taken them quite well. I think probably my wife had more confidence than I did. Uh, she she was the one who at some point decided that uh, we we should make a go at, of Las Vegas, and she knew I wasn't happy working on Wall Street, and uh, she said, "Well, let's go out to Vegas and and try that for five years." So she, I think, probably had more faith in in my game and my ability to win at that time than I did, and. Yeah, I was I was working on Wall Street, and then I was also flying out to play in poker games, and so it, w- it was a lot to to be to try and do both, and and uh, you know it was, it was kind of wearing me down. And and it, the the funny thing about Wall Street, we were you know we were living in New York. Now we had two kids, and it was it was even though I was making a, a decent living, expenses in New York are so high that trying to you know pay for rent and two kids going to private school 
really became, you know, a, a, for me, you know, kind of a scary thing. With, could, could I continue to do that? And I didn't really, I, I mean, I knew I could continue the, or I, I thought I could continue to, to make money on Wall Street, but I didn't, I, I wasn't making enough that I felt like, well, you know, now we have a nice cushion. And so the idea of moving to Las Vegas and, and cutting our expenses and and uh, and trying a different life and also just you know just just I think that my wife Rua's feeling was that she didn't want to get in the way she didn't she wanted me to be able to pursue my dreams which you know at that time I really did want to play poker and I wanted to see you know how 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 well I could do playing poker. Z's experience as a professional gambler isn't limited to card games. He's also been a serious sports better, and he did it in the days before widespread legalization. That means he did it when markets were less efficient, and also when the police could knock on the door at any time. Well, I actually was sort of lucky because I was studying, and I was working in the publishing company, and I was I had just gotten my MBA, and I said, well, it's, I'm not happy with what going on here. They had promised me a raise, then they tried to delay it. And I was getting my resume polished up to start submitting my resume and looking for headhunters. And I quit the publishing job. And we went off to a backgammon tournament in Aruba. And I won the tournament, you know, not for what, what doesn't seem like a lot of money now, but seemed like a lot of money then probably 25 or $30,000. And then I said, well, why don't I just try gambling and see what happens and see if I have to go back to work or not? And while I was doing that, one of my friends said, you know, you're a smart guy. You could probably be a good bookmaker. So I tried to become a bookmaker for a while. I, and being a bookmaker, being involved in sports betting, you have to first find people who want to bet, which was easy because everybody I knew was a gambler. Then you had to find good lines to give them and a procedure for them to bet. And I hitched up with a friend of mine who let me have what was called a sheet where my players would bet in his office. So that was easy. Then you had to get have your players be unlucky to lose. And that was easy because most people are losers. Then you had to collect the money, which turned out to be something I wasn't good at. I was very good at finding the people, getting them to bet, finding losers. But when it came to actually getting money out of the people, you know, I had too many people who paid for the first two weeks and then stopped paying or won the first week and didn't pay the second week. So I gave up the idea of being a bookmaker. And during that time, I'd learned a lot about sports betting. And I got introduced to a very good uh, guy who did a lot of quantitative sports research. So we started putting together a betting group, and I became a better rather than attempting to be a bookmaker. And in theory, bookmaking was illegal and betting was legal, although, again, how you prove what you are is very tough. I had a little bit of influence in picking what side we were betting on, but mostly I was following numbers provided by somebody else. And then we had trouble betting as much as we wanted. So we had people all over the country helping us. In these days with the internet, the line is the same everywhere in the world at once. You can see when money is coming in the side, everything is very transparent. In those days, if uh, Los Angeles was playing New York, the line in New York might be 
the line in New York from a New York bookmaker might be very different than the line in LA from an LA bookmaker. When I first started betting sports, I had a young woman named Beth who was helping me. And the bookmakers in New York opened at six o'clock. At let's say quarter after six, we could make the bets we wanted. If we called back at quarter after seven, we could still bet at the same line we had bet at. And we were betting very small. We were just starting out. Later, I had five or six people helping in the office, plus people all over the country who we would call and tell them what to bet on. And now if we bet on something at quarter after six, at 6.17, the line would have changed pretty much everywhere in the world. You, you had one or two phone calls to make your bets, and then the line would have changed. A somewhat regular occurrence is that law enforcement will arrest a group of sports bettors and then claim to be unaware that the bettors aren't bookmakers. The history of sports betting has a number of famous examples, including the Billy Walters trial in the 1980s. Well, that also happened to Z. Twice. You know, we, we were lucky when we got in trouble in New York that we had had a problem with a bookmaker who said we made a bet that we didn't make. or At least there was a difference of opinion over what bet we had made. Let's put it that way. So we set up a recording system to record everything we did. So now when they came in, they took us all off to jail for the weekend. They took what a, there was not much cash around, but I think it was near Christmas time. So they took people's Christmas bonuses. They took all that. And they also took all of the tapes, tape recorders, computers, everything that was in the office. So when my lawyer arranged for me to speak to a DA or an assistant DA, and I said, look, you're accusing us of being a bookmaker. You have 500 hours of tapes of us in the office. Let's pick a few at random and play them. And if you see us taking bets and not making bets, put us in jail and charge us with bookmaking. If you see all we're doing is calling out and making bets and then having people call us back and report in what they bet for us, then let us go. And they dropped the charges. In Nevada, we had a similar thing happen, but there they accused, since we were making bets with bookmakers, we were really aiding and abetting the bookmaker by helping them get a better line. In other words, we would lay five and a half in a game. They would go to six and a half. So the fact that we bet the game was helping them adjust their lines, and they had confiscated a huge amount of money. So now it was a question, A, if we lost, if we went to trial, which I think we would have won, it would have been very expensive. And we had a downside of people doing serious jail time and losing all of the money. So when they said, in the course of negotiations, the police said, uh, let us keep the money and we'll let you go with a misdemeanor or something like that. Uh, you know, no, nobody will do any jail time. Uh, we knew it was really all about the money. They couldn't care less about putting sports bettors in jail. So then the rest of the negotiations were about doing the, uh, who, how much of the money, I think they had confiscated about $2 million and what percentage of that they would end up keeping. But, uh, the, the old saying used to be, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. The new saying is, don't do the crime if you can't pay the fine. So we can add sports to the games that Z has mentioned in this episode, which, just going from memory, also includes blackjack, chess, checkers, clobbyash, backgammon, bridge, and a bunch of variants of poker. 
I think I really enjoyed it or I never would have been good. But I also would, let's say maybe I might have wanted to try to focus completely on bridge and become a great bridge player because I was a talented kid, but I hadn't really, I wasn't working hard enough at the game and I was developing bad habits and I didn't have a good partnership and all of those things. But it was pretty clear that there was no money in bridge. So I wanted also to be playing games where I could make enough money to support myself. So it's kind of a combination of trying to find games where you can win money, but are also fun games to play. Poker is, and backgammon both are fairly social. I mean, there's a lot of talking and joking and, you know, they're interesting games to play. So from that point of view, I'm happy playing them. Uh, Some games like Blackjack, which I've played a fair amount of, although I'm barred most places now, are pretty boring. I mean, it's like being an accountant. You're counting cards. You know what the count is. If you screw it up and you do the, your strategy is all predetermined. It's nothing very interesting. It's nothing creative. We started this episode by noting that one of the things that made the Mayfair special was a genuine interest in games. They played all manner of games and the more complicated, the better. I think that's an interesting thing to think about relative to the way that poker has changed in recent years, because Z and Eric are still playing and somewhat remarkably are both still learning the game. I don't think I've ever been a particularly good tournament poker player. I was always a pretty good cash poker player and playing for money always seemed more, you know, I played in the World Series each year and I'd cash occasionally. But if you took, uh, added up all of the money I paid in entry fees and hotel rooms and transportation to different tournaments and all of that stuff, I probably was breaking even at best. And then during the pandemic, I had nothing to do. I was at home. So I said, you know, why don't I study? There are all kinds of new ways to study poker. So I said, well, let me start studying poker, especially poker tournaments. And then I came out post-pandemic and had a bunch of nice caches in high roller tournaments against people who were allegedly the best players in the world. You know, this isn't like beating up my usual uh, 5'10 no-limit players or 5'10 PLO players. These are allegedly the best players in the world. And then again, this year in the World Series, I had another good good set of runs in the tournaments. So it's uh, it proves that if you work hard, and I'm a hard worker, you can do well at these things. Z mentioned the new ways to study the game. So let me just say that the evolution of poker theory has roughly followed the evolution in technology. First, the internet brought the practice of poker to the masses, and strategy discussion exploded on message boards and blogs. Then computing power caught up to allow the simulation of poker hands. If we compare the current state of knowledge about poker to the information that existed when Eric started, the contrast is stunning. I mean, except for the initial, uh, initially buying Skolansky's $2 pamphlet, you know, which, which helped me the first couple of days I played, I didn't really find any of the reading, any of the books back then uh, were all that useful. I mean, Doyle's book I, I thought was useful in some ways. And then Dan Harrington told me that he thought that uh, Mike Caro's book was good. And Mike Caro had written a book uh, on tells. And I read that, and I, I do think that changed my perspective a lot. The interesting part about that is I don't think there were any tells in that book that I ever used, but it gave me an awareness of looking for tells. And I think that that was very helpful, particularly at that time when there, there were, you know, there were just uh, more 
I, I think it was probably easier to read people back then than it is now, where people are just a lot more conscious of that. It was a much bigger part of my game back then. I've tried to put myself in the shoes of someone who played poker successfully for years before the advent of solvers made it possible to look up game theory optimal play in almost any situation. On one hand, it would be cool to get answers to questions you'd always wondered about. On the other hand, it would be hard to trust a computer when your own mind and your own intuition had gotten you so far. It's funny to think that we were just kind of making it up for so many years. Uh, and now there are, you know, real guidelines, uh, you know, and then I guess the idea is if you try and learn as best you can, these, you know, uh, how a computer might look at these things, and then you can still go off the reservation and try and, you know, try and figure out spots where a, a computer might not necessarily approve of a play, but it, but it works in that particular situation. Eric is top five all time on the poker tournament money list. And he's also top five all time in world series of poker bracelets. But those two lists don't have as much overlap as you'd think. The bracelet leaderboard is dominated by people who've been playing for a long time. The money list is dominated by players that have been successful in the era of high roller tournaments, where buy-ins start at 25,000 and can go to 100,000 or a million. And so there aren't a lot of people that have both played a long time and have also been successful in the high roller era. There aren't many players like Eric. When he started, he stuck out because he was young. They used to call him Eric the Kid. Now he sticks out because he isn't young. When I, when I first came into the game, it was really an older crowd. It was, you know, it was a lot of the Texans had been playing with each other for years. And, and uh, it was very unusual to have somebody, you know, who was under 30 who was playing in those games. So, you know, Chan was young. I was young. You know, then Helmuth came in. He was young and Huxied. But at, at the time that we all started playing, most of the players were much older than us. And uh, that certainly has shifted entirely to now it's just a young person's game. And you don't see many older people uh, p- playing in these events or, or, you know, certainly getting through the many days it takes to get through the days. You know, somebody like Dan, um, you know, and I, I try my best to get him to play the World Series because uh, I, I love to see him play and, and he's such a great player. Uh, but it's it's exhausting, you know, that they, they, you know, to have to play more than 12 hours a day and, and uh, you know, for multiple days in a row. It's just, it's just too exhausting for somebody, you know, a, a, as we get older. It, it's a cliche, but, but, it, but life goes by very quickly. I mean, I, I know I'm an older player and, and certainly people look at me that way. And, and I don't think there's anybody within 20 something years of 25 years of me that's playing the circuit. Uh, so I'm certainly aware of my age, but when I'm playing, I don't really feel like that. I just feel like, you know, what can I do? What's the right play? And what, uh, you know, uh, can I, can I figure my way through this table? You know, I, I, I don't know that I feel that much different than I did, uh, you know, when I was younger in, in terms of my thinking. I, I think that maybe I'm better at being even keel that I'm not uh, that I'm not as susceptible to losing great amounts. Like I'm, you know, I, I'm I'm not the kind of person who, because he's losing, is going to start, you know, doubling it up and trying to get even. You know, if you're in this world, you you end up, you know, being around some really incredible minds and a, a really elite thinkers. Edges are roughly equal to the information you have, which is uniquely yours. 
Now that anyone can look up a spot in a poker hand and have a computer tell them how often they should be checking and betting, and also the size of those bets, there is less proprietary information. You know, it's it for me. It's a it's just an interesting challenge to try and generate enough energy to compete on a daily basis and uh, and to try and you know to 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 try and be profitable at the end at the end of the year to try and you know continue to get. Uh, you know, to, to try and hang with these people. It's, it's, uh, it's a particularly challenging time because over the last few years, you know, computers came into the game and have really, you know, completely changed the way the game is played. So it's nice in the sense that, you know, it, there's more stuff to learn and, uh, and there are more challenges. Uh, but it's also created a, you know, situation where, uh, our edges or, or your edge, if, if you have one, is, is quite thin. And, uh, you know, it's definitely more challenging than it's ever been. But, uh, you know, for me, it's, you know, it's fascinating to see, can I continue to do this? And will I continue to do this? And, you know, what's, for, what's fortunate for me is that, you know, the, the passion hasn't left me. And it's, it's uh, you know, for me, it's still fascinating to try and figure the game out. And it's it's fascinating to me to play with these great players and, and see what they're doing and try and, you know, try and uh, emulate, you know, the, so many, of the, many of the changes. The basic proposition of playing a game is that it will challenge your mental resources. That's why we like to play. And if you add competition and stakes, then it's also going to challenge all of your emotional resources as well. So I think that's one explanation for why gambling is such a basic human endeavor. It's a personal challenge because you're just trying to figure things out at the table, trying, like, hoping that your mind will work well enough to think through these problems. And the, the challenge of trying to play, you know, trying to solve these problems, trying to play against the best players in the world is, uh, to me, it's endlessly fascinating. I, I really look forward to playing every day. I look forward to final tables you know, where, where the stakes are really high and, uh, and you get to be in these situations and, and, uh, and it's always interesting to see, well, how did you do? Did you know, what kind of mistakes did you make and what kind of, uh, you know, where, where did you find, you know, value spots and, and, and can you, you know, find things that you can do against these, these really elite players? It's fascinating to me. And I'm so glad that I'm, that I love it as much as I do because, you know, it just, uh, it's really what motivates me to continue to play and to continue to try and improve. Eric started playing in an underground club in New York with characters like Phil the Rabbi. Today he plays the circuit with people that look like engineers from Google. Maybe it's true what they say. Not all change is progress. The game has really, really evolved. It, and, you know, it's attracted a lot of really incredibly bright young people. And, uh, it's a different thing entirely. You don't have anybody like Puggy Pearson anymore, who I, I think dropped out of school in, his, in the sixth grade. <laughs> and uh, those guys were great old characters. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, it, it was a fun. It was fun to get to play with them. And uh, it's too bad that uh, that the game has evolved. And, you know, and and uh, and now you don't have as much of those characters anymore.
Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Eric Seidel and Steve Zolotow. I also want to thank Larry Bernstein for putting me in touch with Eric. I've wanted to do this episode for a long time. I just didn't have a way of making it happen without Larry. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email us, riskofruinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Half Kelly. Kelly.